Hey everyone, this episode is supported by Compiler, an original podcast by the folks at Red Hat. Hosted by Angela Andrews and Rent Simino, Compiler discusses and demystifies tech topics, big, small, and strange. Yeah, I'm super impressed. They cover pressing topics that we sometimes cover with great depth. For example, one of their episodes tackles, what are hiring managers looking for? In it, they try to understand what's really important about the dreaded and much maligned whiteboard interview. Make sure you stay tuned to the end of the episode of Techish, as we've got a preview of another one of the episodes, Should Managers Code? Listen to Compiler on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to podcasts. We'll also include a link in the show notes. Yo, everyone, welcome back to Brand New Techish in the Building. It's me, Michael Bahane of Pocket, and I'm joined with the amazing... Abadesi of Hustle Crew. Abadesi in the house. All right, cool. So first story I want to jump into is there's been a massive expose done by the Wall Street Journal on our favorite company ever, Facebook. So in the expose, they looked at three things, but I want to focus on one. So the three things are the toxic effect that Instagram has on teenage girls. The other one is that they're Mm -hmm. treating different influencers with kids gloves so you know if you're a celebrity and you do something that breaks the rules you don't get thrown off the platform whereas if you're an ordinary joe you do and then there's another third story on human trafficking both and all three of those topics are very serious but i think just going along with the theme of the show and what we've talked about i want to focus on the impact on young teenage girls so the data's come out facebook's own internal research has shown that one in three uh, teenage girls who use Instagram have body issues, basically, or are affected in that way. There's even data regarding suicidal thoughts, a disproportionate amount of impact in that regard. What say you? Because this is something that we've talked about before. I remember a couple of weeks ago, I was like, I don't even think you should be on there under a certain age. The age limit needs to go up. Like, I kind of feel vindicated (laughs) right now. But what's your perspective on this one? Uh, I like, when this story broke, I was kind of thinking of like, that movie, Thank You for Smoking. Do you remember that movie? Yes, yes. It's like quite old. Ironically, you know who the producers are? It's like Elon Musk and the PayPal Mafia. They produce that movie. A lot of tech people produce that movie. What? But anyway, yeah, because it's like, yeah. Anyways, go on, carry on. But that's a, everybody check out that Didn't movie. Didn't see Thank that coming. Smoking. Yeah. But yeah, it's been interesting to see like the... So, so for anyone that's listening, it's basically about like a tobacco lobbyist. So he works for Big yeah. Tobacco and he's trying to like go around and be like, hey, it's not that bad. Like, hey, like, <laughs> you know, don't focus on the lung cancer research focus on this instead and what i think is really interesting is that you know this isn't the first time in you know modern capitalism that we are aware of an industry that profits off what is ultimately like a super unhealthy damaging even deadly practice and we know that social media is complicated but the, the reality is social media products generate profits for people and those people are aware that their products are harmful Uh, And in some cases, deadly. Like we know that WhatsApp has killed people because of spreading misinformation in India. We've covered that story before. So this isn't the first time Facebook's been exposed in a way in terms of like, you you know the damage that your product uh, generates and you know that you have a responsibility. And I think that it's the responsibility piece that is what we're struggling to solve because is Facebook being penalized for the fact that teenage girls spending too much time on Instagram has huge damaging effects on their health? No, right? Like, what am I doing about it? What are you doing about it? What are parents doing about it? What are like, you know, young women doing about it? We're not doing anything. And it's hard for us to even start to decide what we have the power to do. And I think that makes it really, really tricky. But I think over a longer timeline, 
it is going to be like so interesting to see what happens to Facebook because I do imagine a future where Facebook like is basically lobbying for its survival and like for its existence. And let's face it, like that isn't always like a bad thing. It can end up being like a really positive thing. Like look at how tobacco companies have come around with vaping. Mm -hmm. And now all the research is coming out. Like I'm pretty sure like Philip Morris or one of the big tobacco companies has just done like a $40 million settlement for like the fact that they got so many teenagers underage people addicted to nicotine with their mango passion fruit flavored vapes and whatnot. And it's just like, how is this, how is this a thing? Like, how is this a thing? These huge, huge, huge profitable multi-billion dollar corporations are profiting off the health and negative like impact on like young people. It's just so, so messed up. I just like, I'm I'm stuck on a solution. I don't know what we do about it. So yeah. So this is quite telling. So Instagram's Adam Masuri, who's basically the head of Instagram, he basically drew a comparison between cars and social media platforms. And he says that, listen, we know that more people die than otherwise before because of car accidents, but essentially the value that cars give us is worth that trade-off basically. Now to me, he just made the biggest uh-huh. blunder in that statement because cars are heavily regulated. You have to have a license yeah. to drive number one, yes. You have to be over yeah. a certain age to drive, right? So he misspoke mm. there. And I think whoever's training him is to train him more because he shouldn't say stuff like that because that's actually like a wide open case to be made against your company. And the other thing yeah. is, is that they've always claimed that, listen, social media is bad. Social media is bad. But actually, it's specifically Instagram that has this effect. TikTok apparently is just more creative, people dancing, whatever, mm. whatever. Snapchat nice. has a lot of like face filters. So like, it's not even really you. I mean, it is, but it is not fully you. Whereas Instagram is very much about lifestyle and body image. And that specifically yeah. has caused the problems, right? So they can't even hide it behind behind and say, it's all of us, you know, we're all doing bad things. It's this platform um, specifically. And in fact, actually China has decided that their version of TikTok, Yin, if I say that correct, for under 14s now has a time limit. Only 40 minutes a day and only between the hours 6 a.m. and 10 p.m. Now, if you're asking me, I kind of want that on me, for for example, like I wish I had a 40 minute time limit on these apps, but like, yeah. yeah. Do you think that's a potential solution? I think most people in the West would probably recoil against the idea that the government could just say, yo, you can't go on these apps for more than 40 minutes. But surely for under 14 year olds, <laughs> there has to be that kind of protection, right? Or is that up to the parents? Is it up to the parents I, to say, I yo, mean, I'm looking after my kids? <laughs> it is up to the parents. Not all parents have the time or the privilege or the luxury to patrol and police their children like that. And I think it's, you know, it's worth mentioning that we have inequities across society, across capitalism. Intervention in whatever form, while we're still in this phase, seems valuable to me because we Mm -hmm. don't know what works and what doesn't. So for me, government intervention, is never a permanent thing, but it can be an experiment. We can see if it works. We can see if it lasts. I think that's great. I think what we can ignore is the fact that this issue around like young girls and body image, you know, is also tied to just like the history of patriarchy, the history of misogyny, the objectification of women. And I think it's an unfortunate reminder that a lot of those things have not changed, even though we've had the Me Too movement, even though we are more open to talking about the double standards that men and women face in society. Like, this is just a reminder that, you know, it takes a very long time to achieve systems change and it takes a very long time to, like, shake off cultural expectations and shake off gender norms and gender expectations and I feel like it's just like a reminder that you know cis young women are like facing these same pressures Mm. that women have historically faced like i.e my value my self-worth is totally tied to how I am perceived by Mm -hmm. future potential sexual mates or whatever and that to me is just 
friggin' heartbreaking. It's like the internet was created to advance us as a society and elevate our consciousness. And actually, it's just making us even more primitive sometimes. Yeah, it's mad. Yeah, so if you were a parent, how do you mm. think you would manage your, if you had a daughter, hypothetically, like how would you manage their what? relationship with these platforms? Would you give them, would you say like, you, you know... I'm going to be a Nigerian star parent. Go on, how? I mean, like, you can have a phone when you can afford a phone for yourself. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Buy your own one, basically. That's real. <laughs> at what age did you have a smartphone? What, at what age did you have a phone, by the way? I, <laughs> so I went to boarding school when I was 14. That's when I got my first phone. My older sister sent it to me. I remember she posted it to me because she was in the UK as well. My parents were in Nigeria. So I went to boarding school in the UK. She sent me my phone. The only reason I got a phone was so my parents could, like, call me and make sure I was studying. Right, yeah. <laughs> doing what I was supposed to do. It was like the cheapest pay-as-you-go phone you can imagine. Back in the day, no smartphone. It was not a smartphone. It was like a little flip phone, green background, black text, phone calls, text messages, game over. That was it. You you was like Neo in the Matrix with your flip phone. You know what? I never had a phone until I was 17. It's insane to say. I actually must have... When I think back to it now, I don't don't know what my life was like. I must have been the most present, zen-like, Buddhist monk person ever because I just... If I was (laughs) going for a walk, I just... You're on your PlayStation. (laughs) No, but for example, if I went for a walk, I just went for a walk. There was no music. There was no like... Let me just look down on my no, phone iPod. while I'm waiting for my friend. I don't. No, I never had an iPod either. I no, don't know what I did. No Walkman. I don't. I, it was the dark ages, bro. I, I don't know what I was doing in it. But you know, like unfortunately, you know, the children that we might bring to the world, like they're not gonna have that luxury. They're gonna be wired in from day dot, right? But yeah, I think I, it says I, a lot that Facebook execs don't let their kids have Facebook accounts. Do you know what right, I mean? Yeah. Like and I think Steve, I and think Steve that's Jobs very never, telling. And Steve Jobs never let his kid have an iPad or, and whatnot as well. See um, what I'm saying? What does yeah, that tell uh, you? What does that tell you? And also the thing is very telling that like the you know Chinese government is like we're going to export the poison so you lot can have TikTok as long as you want but our kids protected. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We can mess up. Your kids can get messed up off this whatever and we're going to make money off it but in our society we're not going to allow you know, the mental health of our children to be uh, messed up. One final mm. point on Facebook, innit? Yeah. I know we ain't, we ain't bashed them hard enough already, right? But like one final point is that they were actually trying to release Instagram for kids. Do you remember this? There was a story that yes! came out. They were trying to release Instagram for kids. And it's not like, oh, here's a version for Instagram if you're under 16 from 13 to 16. No, this is a version for Instagram for under 13 year olds. Yeah, for little kids. And I think a few senators... Yeah, it's terrible. Absolutely. And like, there's not even any demand for it. It's just basically Mm -hmm. they're looking for new markets and anything's fair game. And and, until the government basically says, no, you can't do this, they're going to keep going. So it's horrendous. Shameless what we do in the pursuit of money. Shame on you, Facebook, and this one, man. Terrible. So while we were away, actually, MailChimp sold for $12 billion to Intuit. Damn! $12 billion. Listen, this is a bootstrap company. This is a non-Silicon Valley company. You know what? This is the first exit I ever saw where there wasn't a whole bunch of VCs on Twitter congratulating themselves, talking about, I discovered this company. I discovered this Because you know, every time there's an acquisition, you see them, yes, Slack came to my office and here's the email. Here's a screenshot of the email where I said, yeah, I'm in. And it's like, this time around, crickets. All the person that was was bigging themselves up was the founders and like, you know, people that admire the company from afar and, and other bootstrap founders it's definitely a win mm. for bootstrap founders listen me and you are bootstrap Huge. founders this, co- this company was 20 years in the making you know they grew it on profits bit by bit I think revenue was 700 mil at last reported in 2019 but here's the question I got for you Abba yeah. some people are like yo they sell for all this money there's no equity for the employees because they were always told we're never going to sell this is a bootstrap <laughs> company right <laughs> yeah. yeah they claim that listen we did profit sharing everyone got profits 
along the way, mm, right? Yeah. But if you left Moship three years ago and you were there from mm. day year zero to year 17 and you left, yeah. you, you're not getting nothing. Is that slightly unfair? Like, should there be a thing? Should we have that in between? Because one thing that's good about Silicon Valley is that it does enrich the more people than it than just the founders. The employees get equity I mean, if you pick the right company, right? If you pick the right company. On the whole, you, on the whole. On the whole, right, cool. But if you're, if you're in the game, and you manage to finesse your way in and you're probably from the right background and you're at the right company, you can get paid by not doing a lot of entrepreneurial risk-taking, right? It's just as an employee. Now, as a bootstrap founder, how do we kind of like, how do you square that circle? Like where it's like, we want to do outside the system, but can we take the best of the system and bring it into our system? How does this work in your mind? I, I feel like it's such a difficult question, right? Because at the end of the day, MailChimp didn't know that this was like an outcome that they would reach, right? At inception right. five years ago, you know, maybe even two years ago, like who, like it's so unlikely that a privately held company hardly raised any funding has like a huge unicorn exit like this. It's so, 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 so rare. Yeah. So, it, you know, it's probably absolutely the case that at the time the founders said those things to employees, like, it's you know, true. we don't give people equity because we share profit. Like it was true at the time. And I don't believe they did anything nefarious. Like I, we've been big fans of MailChimp for a long time. I use their product in my company. I know people who've worked at MailChimp. I love that they stayed in Atlanta and like try to increase representation and like have diversity in their teams. As tech companies go, they're doing a lot better than most culturally mm-hmm. and like have done. So that makes me feel like they're not like some kind of like Zuck or Adam Newman, like, you know what yeah. I mean? Egomaniac, Finesse. this is all about me kind of thing. But I can appreciate how there are going to be some people who are kind of, you know, upset by this. The truth is like, you know, what's real is like what's real. And, you know, I would not be, I would not be sad to have been on a profit sharing journey, even if it comes, you know, out, even if the final outcome is this huge exit. 12 billion profit though. sharing is 12, so 12, valuable. No, 12 billion though. 12 billion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but people got to be rewarded for the risks that they take. People should be rewarded yeah. for the risks that they take. At the end of the day, you want to go out and start a company and like swim against the tide like they have done for like decades plus like go for it nothing's going to stop you but i do think it's important for people's risks to be paid off and it's interesting actually because you know my team is growing at hustle crew yeah i haven't given anyone equity yeah i haven't given anyone equity because right now in your mind you have no plans to ever sell the company right but it's not just that it's also the fact that like the time to give equity would have been when i was trying to raise seed funding or Mm -hmm. yeah any other time i was trying to fundraise like try and cut someone in before product market fit before i validated the idea and show them that like i you know they got skin in the game and like, this is a legit thing. Fast forward five years, it's going to take a lot of convincing for me to give someone a slice of this pie now, because like, where's the risk now? Right? Like where, Mm. like where, where's the risk? Because you're talking about this Silicon Valley model. And you know, one of the reasons why companies give people equity is because they pay very low salaries to increase their runway. Right. And they want to have a low burn rate. So startups will poach talented salespeople, talented engineers that could easily get a high salary at a market value, pay them a fraction of that and tell them that you'll get equity instead. That's how I ended up at Groupon. I was working in finance. I was working in the city, but Mm -hmm. I was just like, no, I want to work in tech. And I took that risk. I took that pay cut and I took equity instead. If you listen to the show, you know, it didn't amount to much in the end, but that's another story for another day. But what I'm trying to say is like, you know, these are the risks that we take and those are the risks that founders take and I do just kind of feel like I mean yeah it, it, it ultimately is a personal choice and as long as you're being transparent with your employees I don't think it's I don't think it's fair for them to like hold that against you down the line it's extremely difficult to be a leader extremely difficult and at the end of the day we need our rewards because otherwise what what's the incentive for us what's the incentive for us to take risks and bend over backwards to make you know a dream a reality 
Yeah, I guess so. But I think founders in venture-backed companies also take risks, you know? So I don't think it's about whether the founders are taking risks or not. I just think, I think there might have to be an in-between way where like we take the best of what Silicon Valley does and the best of the bootstrap model and find a way. I think, I do think there is a level of like, "Mm, I'm not sure about this one because I do think the employees from day zero probably had, you know, should have some kind of access to wealth beyond just like you got profit sharing while you were here maybe but, but you're it's, asking it's for very benevolence. difficult it's very difficult like you're asking for yeah, benevolence yeah. like yeah, they're, yeah. Not get, they're getting what they were contracted to give of course i don't look at things from the perspective of i don't see like, jeff bezos going to like the og amazon employees and being like right. come and ride on blue origin and i mean but they got equity right and i, I agree with you and i cast jeff bezos for the things that he does anyway but like it's one of those things where i don't necessarily look at look upon things i've been like well that's the contract and that's the paperwork you signed it get out of here right sometimes the paperwork well, is you is, should. Maybe you should. <laughs> but sometimes the paperwork is like unethical or it's wrong or like whatever. But you're right. Those people went into it open eyed and they knew what they were getting into. I don't know. What do you think, everybody? Hashtag techish. Let us know. Should you no, then? I've seen the capitalist in me. <laughs> <laughs> we knew that from day, man. Ruthless. I'm Here's a silly story that I, so I was scrolling on my Twitter as I do too often and I saw people I saw I think I saw Michael Jackson trending and it was like somebody some fool had basically said that is Drake now as big as Michael Jackson was at Shut his up. prime basically <laughs> Shut no, up but, but bear in mind Drake's had basically like 10 number 1 albums and like done a whole heap of madness he's not a small fish he probably is the biggest artist of this era maybe Beyonce is bigger but whichever right you see no valid, like, nothing in this, basically. You just figure silly. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) No, what? This is the kind of thing where all our Gen Z listeners, and maybe this is like an okay boomer moment for me, I don't know, or okay millennial. I don't know, like, what the diss is for people in their 30s now. Yeah. But this is the kind of moment where there's going to be, like, some 18-year-old listening, and they're going to be like, oh, my God, of course Drake is, like, the most important person. And I'm just like, no. I, I literally, like, sorry, all of his music sounds the same. I'm confused. Like... Don't get me wrong. Love Drake. Stand <laughs> Drake. Seen him live many times. Giving that guy my money. All good. Happy to do it. But no. Just no. You can't say. Yeah. I literally have just come back from Rome. I have just come back from Rome. And there was a street performer that had a huge crowd around him. Who was he impersonating? Drake or MJ. Michael Jackson? Michael of Jackson. Of course. Yeah. Classic. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I will wait to see Drake street performers. Drake imitators. <laughs> and see, see the cultural impact of that. But, like, you could go, like, I mean, I don't know. I guess it's also, like, about timing and, like, things like that. But I feel like you can go anywhere in the world and people will be, like, trying to moonwalk. Or like yeah. stand on their toes and like I mean yeah I'm just I saw this amazing video this. <laughs> I saw this amazing clip of like these French documentary filmmakers and they went into the Amazon jungle and they found mm. like some indigenous tribe and they started showing them like video clips and saying like mm. do you know any of this like and it was like 9-11 they didn't know mm. what that was I think they showed like uh, Zidane winning the World Cup they didn't know who he was they showed Michael Jackson they were like yeah yeah we've seen him <laughs> that was the only thing that from the whole world they recognized and they were like yeah Michael Jackson yeah we've seen him we've seen him on TV before it's like alright cool and that's the point Michael Jackson you could go to any village at his peak you go to any village and he was like there you're talking about probably somebody who is outside of religious figures the most famous person to ever live basically right and the thing is I tweeted this as well is that from a tech perspective not only is Michael Jackson much more famous and whatever. I don't think anybody will ever be as famous as Michael Jackson was ever again for the simple reason that now, before we all had the same TV, the same radio, the same content, mm-hmm. very limited selection. So we all saw 
one world basically. Now we're in our own little silos. We're watching content tailored by algorithms. We're all listening to our own Spotify playlist. Like I can't tell you who's number one right now. I don't know. I don't know mm. any of the number ones or who's charting. Like for the last ten years, I can't tell you. Right in the era of Michael Jackson, everybody had to know what everybody else was listening to because that's all there was. Mm. It was a very limited like selection. Yeah. So now we live like in like the era of the micro celebrity. Like you know, somebody showed us like a YouTuber and was like, "Do you know who this YouTuber is? They've got like eight million you know subscribers." I was like, "I've never seen this person before." Yeah, in my I've life. never seen them. Yeah. But if they walk down the street or a certain street, they might get mobbed and i'll be like i don't know who you are i don't care you know what i'm saying right <laughs> like that's just it's a different level it's a different era and yeah so sorry gen z mj is numero uno in this regard the other thing is i think you sent me an article about twitter and how like there'll be some weird debate some crazy debate where one of the options is like pat- absurd and then you look for twitter and you'd be like i can't find the person with the absurd perspective all i see are people saying oh look how silly that perspective is so for example the drake mj one I couldn't actually yeah. find who were the Gen Z people saying that Drake was bigger than Michael Jackson. So sometimes Twitter is just an echo chamber of fake debates with people arguing against ghosts. That's that's the only that's the other thing as well, right? Oh yes, you're talking about yeah. the embedded yes. newsletter that I forwarded on to you. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Basically, like so. For example, there's another one is like, oh, would you rather have 500k or dinner with Jay Z? That's the other like Twitter <laughs> conversation debate, right? <laughs> yeah. There isn't anybody who's saying they want 500k, but everybody, I mean, who, who would take the dinner with Jay Z? Sorry, but I always see people just arguing that point. I'm like, but who are you arguing against? It's a ghost there's nobody yeah. on the other side it's, and it's, it's like we just need to create content for content's sake and for, to be we fair love we, controversy. Do, we love controversy even if it's fake <laughs> we just we've got to make controversy up anyways yeah that's a problematic element of twitter yeah embedded news that are like if people haven't read it really interesting but yeah it was basically around that whole thing like this is like the final evolution of twitter and it proves that it's completely useless to us Everybody, go check out Compiler, a new podcast from Red Hat, hosted by Angela Andrews and Brent Simino. They tackle the big questions like, what is technical debt? What are hiring managers actually looking for? And do you have to know how to code to get started in open source? I'm having to step back myself from running my own company and not to be so involved in the day-to-day. So I checked out their first episode, Should Managers Code? There were loads of gems I picked up. I know so many of you want to become managers, so it's fascinating to look at the consequences of career growth. Listen to Compiler on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to podcasts. We'll also include a link in the show notes. My thanks to Compiler for their support. So I actually cannot even talk about this story while keeping a straight face. So some (laughs) geniuses at CBS, Global Citizen, and Live Nation, decided to make a reality show called The Activist, which sounds like it was going to be some kind of hybrid between, like, total wipeout, like, gladiators, like, pop idol, basically getting a bunch of different activists to compete through a series of stunts, like, who can get the most media attention for their campaign, (laughs) ultimately culminating in a grand prize finale. So... This is like reality sh- reality TV, I think, like looking at the like data on mm-hmm. what people care about following Black Lives Matter in 2020, like the huge movement and basically maybe trying to rationalize that what people want is a social justice reality yeah. show. They managed to convince. Now, you know, there was a lot of money behind this because they managed Mm -hmm. to convince Usher Usher. and Priyanka Chopra Jonas to be co-hosts of this. Also, Julianne Howe. I don't know her. I don't know how she's famous. Obviously, this got backlash. So problematic in so many ways. Activism isn't about competition. It's about collaboration. Secondly, why are you making people fight against each other? What, you're going to have a disability person fighting against a... 
abortion rights person fighting against a, I don't even know what, stop Asian hate. Oh my Lord. So that only one is worthy of the prize. Oh, I like, I just started thinking about shows like The Swan, that show where women like plastic surgery to be the hottest one and then like get a partner. And I was just like, no TV, no, no. And what made me really sad about this was that like, so there's been an ongoing theme around main broadcast and legacy broadcast channels that they're struggling to get like younger audiences and that's why there are always these really horrific like attempts to engage a young audience and you can tell that this was just one of those really misguided events like Quibi remember Quibi when they're like everyone watches stuff on their phones so let's make a vertical only content channel Um, it's just such a misguided attempt to capture the zeitgeist just so tragic I don't know how many intelligent highly paid people could have actually greenlit that why there was no one along the way clearly there are no black people there or like disabled people or muslim people like no one from like you know underrepresented groups well ash is there ash is there he, he greenlit it so ash, like, ash is just getting paid ash is just getting paid ash is just like whatever or sure he's getting paid but i was just like how but like how even the people that read the press release how how it's like that pepsi ad remember that yeah. pepsi ad was with it with Kendall Jenner? Kylie yeah. Kendall, I can't tell them apart. One of them, like, anyway. I know you're <laughs> filling out your application. I know you were filling out your application, so you're sad. I'm trying you're to win. I'm trying to win. That's what I'm trying to do. Now, I think I think they've pivoted it to a documentary now, where basically, instead oh, of it being a competition, they're going to follow five people and they all get the money, better. basically. That's a much better yes. format, right? This kind of American Idol version of the show was perfect. And also, to be honest, listen, man, I've had, I remember talking about the the BLM founder buying the yards and buying a house and stuff like that. Like I don't like when activists become celebrities. I I don't know what it is. I just grew up Jealous. on people like I just yeah I hate her in it. You know what I'm saying? But I grew up on I don't know man. Maybe I just I don't know. I have a romanticized view of people that actually made change like Malcolm, like Nelson Mandela, and you know. And I just when I see now in this current era where. I, some people use it as a come up. It kind of irks me because it's like, there are real people and it real causes dis- that are yeah, pain. Yeah, it feels disingenuous. Like, it's not about Instagram likes. You see what I'm saying? It's not about... Because for example, do you remember the Stop Joseph Coney thing? Do you remember that? No. You don't remember that? There was a campaign like 2012 about this Ugandan terrorist or like, I guess he was a terrorist and he was called Joseph Coney. And there was a massive campaign to kind of uh, get Joseph Coney arrested. And all these celebrities okay. were activated. These, these little two white kids in America, they came up with this campaign to arrest this kind of terrorist rebel leader in Uganda who was kidnapping kids and making them child soldiers. If you're a millennial, wow. you might remember this. It was a big thing on Facebook. And somehow these kids, these guys in America got like Rihanna involved. Everybody changed their, wow. their profile pictures and, and it was a big hoopla. What came of it? I don't know. What was the implications of it? I don't know. You're trying to get the US military to go in there and invade Uganda and like do some kind of geopolitical nonsense. I don't know. But the point I'm making is, and that's a side tangent, but the point I'm making is this whole thing is perverse. I don't like it. I'm glad it, 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 it pivoted to a documentary. Just give everybody the money if they're real activists. And yeah, I just don't know. I just don't, I What's feel like wrong everybody has- that it even got there? <sighs> I understand why they did it though, because it, it does connect many of the dots that people think that Gen Z like. We love influencers. I'm not we, you know, I'm not Gen Z, but influencers, um, <laughs> social justice, right? So yeah, I know, trying to slide myself in there. I free. No, nope. <laughs> access denied. Uncle, I'm the uncle. <laughs> Hi guys, where's the cool party next? <laughs> That's my role now. Where's the next cool party, guys? Hey guys, yeah. I'm crispy. Look at me. <laughs> yeah, no, but uh, I, lost tra- I lost track of what I was saying now. Sorry. But yeah, it connects things. So the influencer culture, social justice culture, mm-hmm. social media, like, and they thought, yeah, let's just connect all of it and make it into a thing. And no, just no, completely wrong. Uh- <laughs> Fun fact, before I started Hustle Crew, I was working on a really toxic startup and 
I ended up quitting because it was just horrible. I was being gaslit, all this stuff. And I read Ellen Powell's book, Reset. And yeah. it changed my life. Like, I cannot, you know, say that enough. Like, it, it really did. And that actually started me on the journey of starting Hustle Crew. And Ellen Powell wrote an incredible opinion piece for New York Times talking about how the double standards within tech, especially when it comes to founders, female founders and male founders, continues to dominate the ecosystem. And she feels that Elizabeth Holmes and the Theranos scandal is another incredibly compelling example to prove that. And I had no idea. So, so you know, if you've been listening to the show or been following the news story, Elizabeth Holmes is now facing trial for fraud because the product that she raised millions of pounds millions of pounds, dollars, whatever, for actually, you know, didn't do what it promised it could do. And now she's under investigation. The point that Ellen Powell makes is that this isn't the first time an entrepreneur Mm -hmm. hasn't delivered on the promise of their pitch. And what she's trying to ask us to do is think about how the media tells the story and also think about who gets vilified and who gets to redeem themselves within this ecosystem and who actually stays a villain. And, you know, I do think it's really interesting that Ellen Powell herself, having been like pushed out of Kleiner Perkins, where, you know, she sued them for sexual harassment, race discrimination. She lost the trial. She said no to a settlement so that she could retain the right to speak openly about the story. That's what led to her book. That's what led to Project Include and all the other incredible things mm-hmm. that they did. You know, it is, it is like really like important for us to like focus on the fact that the media has allowed people like Adam Newman to redeem themselves. In the article, I learned he's already raised like tens of millions for another venture. Probably. That would have surprised me. And I was like, what? Like after he had that crazy valuation before they went public that like overvalued them, SoftBank made a huge loss. Like, you know, why is it that some people get to make huge mistakes, specifically men, specifically Mm -hmm. cishet white men, get to make huge mistakes. They're back there for a bit, but then they get to redeem themselves. When women make mistakes, they're bad people forever. There's no right. chance at redemption. Yeah, you know what? I definitely respect Ellen Power. I know she was a VC and actually had to sue her VC firm for sexual discrimination. And exactly. she's a pioneer in many ways. And she knows firsthand like how, you know, how fugazi the industry can be. But I can't lie, man. I, I'm not seeing the angle here because I think with Adam Newman and Travis, these are not great people. These are very scrupulous individuals. But for example, I wouldn't draw a moral comparison between WeWork and Theranos. Like WeWork, basically they ripped off their investors and they built a company that was pretty much worthless but and was nowhere near the valuation that the company was actually valued. But we know in their S1 that they were like telling some story, their S1 paper is that like they, the reality of WeWork was not what the brand sold, right? Yeah, listen, he defrauded his investors. they were a company, not a tech company. Well, that, that's the greed of the investors for buying into that valuation and buying into that story, right? That was a bubble and, and foolishness all around from investors and him for selling that story. And he is basically a huckster. He's a huckster, he's a fraud, right? Mm. With, uh, the Theranos story, to me, is so damaging to, to create a, a, he- a health product and put it on the market and say to people, you have AIDS or you don't have AIDS or you have cancer or you don't have cancer. But people to have me, if my have skinny if- teas. People have like claimed that skinny teas can do stuff. Like so many health products are misleading. Um, no, I, no, listen, there's a distinction between saying my supplement makes you feel better and there's a dis- distinction between here's a medical testing equipment that is going to tell mm. you and analyze your blood and you're going to go to your doctor and your doctor's going to give it to you and it doesn't work. 
Like that to me is a case above. I, but I won't deny that part of the reason why the story is so sensational is has a sensational bent is because she is a woman founder. And there's this element mm. where like it's you know just like what happened with the away founder, there was like a backlash with their story as well. Like it's sensationalist. It's like oh my god, look, you know these people were heralded, and now that you know here's a takedown. Right, I get that perspective of it. Right, but in terms yeah. of the repercussions that she's facing. To me, they're absolutely deserved. And maybe the best argument, and listen, obviously I know I'm a dude hearing it. So this is obviously like, I'm a bit overstepping my, my bound here, but I just can't get over the, the seriousness, seriousness of what she's done. And like, I feel like making comparisons, it's like, I, I don't see the point, honestly. I get the fact that Travis Kalakani- Okay, well, can, let me give you an example. Give me an okay, example. Yeah. Let me give you another example. Jewel. Yeah. Jewel brought vaping into the mainstream. The chief executive yeah. at the helm of Jewel is called Kevin Burns. He helped Jewel raise $12.8 billion. The, the Jewel vape was- Branded yeah. as something that helps people stop smoking cigarettes. Yeah. In 2019, Congress began investigating a youth nicotine epidemic and yeah. the part that Jewel played in that, including marketing it, right? Yeah. And this summer, Jewel agreed to pay a $40 million settlement, i.e. they were guilty of yeah. that, right? $40 million yeah, yeah. settlement because they agree that their marketing created the nicotine epidemic yeah. amongst young people. So there you go. That's an example of a health product. That was yeah. designed to make people stop smoking. Actually, made kids start smoking. Yes, yeah, so and basically, then made like the, the more marketing. More and more kids start smoking. That guy's still working. He's still working. He's not working at another company. He's not in uh, trouble. Yeah, you know why what? isn't he, he in trouble? And why he don't should people be, know I mean, his he, name? I mean, he is in trouble. I mean, yeah, you're right. We should know his name, and that should be a much bigger story. I don't deny that. I have seen a Netflix documentary about it, but like you're right, that should be much more wide scale. And I do think the fact that Elizabeth Holmes is a woman is part of the reason why the story is as big in terms of like why we talk about her and why we know her kind of thing because she was the first female like tech billionaire, kind of the next Steve Jobs basically. And the whole hoopla around it and the takedown is also part of the sensationalist angle. I agree that guy oh, by should the way, be more well Adam known. Newman has raised. $400 million for his new startup. I, I personally don't think, that. I think the Jewel example is the only one where I'd be like, that's comparable. I think Adam Newman, like <laughs> he suckered investors basically. And he mm-hmm. built a company that was rubbish. Basically it's a rubbish company that took in a whole bunch of money and fooled people, investors particularly. And I don't care that investors got fooled, but Theranos and Jewel, there should be, those are on a similar level kind of thing. But anyway, yeah. we'll, we'll see what everybody thinks. Hashtag tech, hashtag, you know what? Let us know what you think. Did I get it wrong? Am I being too harsh on Elizabeth Holmes here? As always, here's our reminder to send us reviews. We love when you review us on Apple Podcasts. We love when you share our episode with friends. If you haven't followed or subscribed, please do. Here we have a review from LT underscore music by Apple Podcasts. Thanks for reviewing us. Very dope show. That's obviously referring to me, not Michael. (laughs) Love listening to this podcast and getting a UK perspective on tech and the black tech space. They cover all kinds of trending topics around tech and culture. It's an easy, quick listen. Would love longer episodes or even guest interviews at some point. Keep keep doing what you what y'all do. Much love from STL. Is that Seattle? Nice. I ain't got no clue. Where's the STL? ATL. Yeah, let's we'll take it. Yeah, STL. STL. Yeah. Who's that from? LT Music. Shout out to LT Music yeah. for saying that's in that review. All right, cool. Yo, everyone. Thank you for listening to this week's Techish. Hit us up at, at TechishPod or hashtag Techish if you want to join in the conversation. And we'll catch you next week. Peace. Bye. Bye-bye. We close up with an exclusive sneak peek of Red Hat's new podcast, Compiler. Taken from the first episode, Should Managers Code? As you know from listening to TechEdge, technology can be big, bold, bizarre, and complicated, but it doesn't have to be. Compiler unravels industry topics, trends, and the things you've always wanted to know about tech through interviews with some of the tech folks at Red Hat. 
This episode is all about whether managers should code. If you like what you hear, please click the link in the show notes to listen to the full episode. The whole idea for this episode started because I got this email. I'll give you a, it's a, the actual imagery. So I have an L-shaped desk, and on the short end of the L is my work computer with its multiple displays and all of that. And on the long end is my personal laptop. I'm going to introduce you to someone. My name is Chris Bredesen, and I'm a director of software engineering here at Red Hat, and I've been in tech for about 31 years. I generally will sit down in the morning and I'll look through some, some of my newsfeed and check my personal email if I'm you know not running late. And I'll go through my feed reader and I happen to notice this particular article and I think the title of it was literally Should Managers Code? And so I literally emailed it to myself at Red Hat and then turned my chair 90 degrees to the left, waited for that email to hit. And I think at that very second, I either forwarded it and stripped out the headers or just pasted it into that managers list thread. So the subject of the email is should managers code? And there's no introduction or anything. There's no like, hey, managers, check this out. He just puts the link right there at the top. <laughs> okay. And he's got this quote from the article, which says, There's no consensus on the subject that I'm aware of. There are people that I deeply respect technically who really believe that coding is a lousy use of their time. And the article goes on to say, but then anyone who's been in this biz for long has met architecture astronauts, and that's in... <laughs> that's capitalized, so you know it's an important and very well-used term. Architecture astronauts who could make a hell of a design chart in OmniGraffle, but are regularly really wrong on important subjects. And then Chris goes on to say, I have had this conversation with people many times over the years. Worth reading, but in case you want a spoiler, and then there's another quote. If you used to like to code but don't do it anymore, I suggest you see if you still do. What happened after he hit send? Well, pretty much exactly what he expected to happen. This is Red Hat, right? You're going to get conversation whether you want it or not. And uh, sure enough, I think throughout that day, there were lots of responses. I think it's very possible that once you get a few replies down the line, you've now lost the original article and now you're just discussing the last response, right? There's probably a, a law about social media there, right? You've clicked and you didn't read the article. But that's fine, right? It was all topical discussion among managers, and I think it was all really good. It blew up. It blew up. <laughs> this thread got a lot of responses. Chris was, he said he got a, a pretty good kick out of watching the thread grow over the course of a, a couple of days. Why do you think there was such a big response? Like, did this hit a nerve? What was going on there? A lot of the managers at Red Hat come from a technical background, right? And they love coding, and it's hard for them to stop doing so. Mm-hmm. Chris describes it as a kind of muscle memory. The muscle memory, as I said, of jumping in to fix the problem is very seductive and is something that I think is probably not a great behavior for leaders to do. So he was talking to his mentor about it and trying to figure out how much of his time he should be spending doing traditional managerial duties and how much he should be doing more of the technical things that brought him to Red Hat before he was a manager. We started talking about the balance between domain expertise and management expertise. So for a technologist, that might mean programming versus leadership. For someone in sales, that might be actual selling versus leadership of a team. And so I asked her, you know, how much time do you spend actually managing a team, doing leadership, building leadership and all of that stuff? And he said he got some really good advice. So 
I went straight to the source of that one. My name is Lori Krebs. I am currently the CFO of Red Hat. I think he asked me, you know, where I am in my career, what I see of me practicing my technical finance slash tax expertise versus just leadership management. And I said, yeah, easily. It's less than 20%. So I said, it's probably 20%. I still stay in that technical mindset, but it's 80% that I spend on the being a manager and leading the team. Really? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. So only 20% of her time is doing the stuff and the rest is managing? I mean, how hard is it to manage? I don't know. Brent, tell me. Help me here. So I think it's pretty difficult. I think it may be more difficult than it can seem from the outside. But back to the question, 80% of the time spent managing. I mean, that sounds about right to me. I think that we should call this the Lori Krebs ratio. Oh, I like that. Mm-hmm. I like that. I don't know if someone else has said this or, you know, if it came from an article or something. But like, to me, this is the Lori Krebs ratio. And it's so christened. Yep. <laughs> the Lori Krebs ratio. There it is. 80% managerial, 20% technical. Okay. Okay, so hold hold on. We know that some managers, they want to code. Why shouldn't they? (laughs) Because there are some horror stories out there. (laughs) I believe that. Yeah, we asked around for some examples of managers behaving badly. You know, get some juicy gossip on tape. (laughs) But uh, people were, I mean, pretty understandably reluctant to give many details that could trace back to any one particular person or situation. Yeah, I totally understand that. It is a big, small industry. And, you know, circles are really, really small. You don't want to burn those bridges. They didn't want to name names. Mm -hmm. So while we don't have any stories to share today, trust me, there are some pretty awful stories out there of managers getting in the way of their teams or much worse. It's such a common problem that there's even a character in a book about DevOps processes who stands in as the archetype of don't be that manager. What should a manager do to realistically keep to the Lori Krebs ratio? I mean, it seems really hard to me to keep to that ratio. Yeah, that that seems fairly common. But there are some solutions out there. I've got a few answers for you. The first comes from Mark Little. I'm Mark Little. He's a VP of engineering here at Red Hat. So obviously he's been on the management track for quite a while. And he's been a coder for even longer than that. I've been in the tech industry, depending on how you want to classify that, since 1988. And he never expected to be a manager, right? Just like you're feeling right now, Angela, he always told himself that he never wanted to move away from coding. I've been coding in one way or another since 1977. And I just, I love it. And I thought you could never do coding when you're a manager. So the further I get away from coding, the further I get away from what I love to do. And as he progressed in his career and eventually became a manager, he had that same kind of muscle memory problem like Chris described. I want to help get to the answer now rather than in an hour or two hours. When Mark sees something that he wants to jump in on and help out, he gets a little devil on his shoulders saying like, just go in there and tell them that this is wrong. They got to stop. They got to roll it all back. 
And then he's got the little angel on his shoulder that says, well... You know what? This code is already in the product, so we can't roll it back. we got to kind of roll it forward. And also, you don't want to make people feel bad about that. They've done a great job. I can understand why they perhaps have gone down a road that I wouldn't have gone down if they'd known the internals perhaps as much as I do. So then you've got to figure out how you can approach them in a way to help them understand that there are alternatives and probably better alternatives and then get them to change it and evolve it. So I've been in that situation a few times and so far, touch wood, we've come out of the other side as a team together and it's been very positive. But Mark still likes to code, right? Does he still get to do that? He does. Mark has found a unique outlet for his creativity. Oh, I like that. Tell us more. I need, to, I need to know what his outlet is. How do you reconcile this? So he sets himself some projects for his time off. When he's on holiday, he finds little tasks to do for himself. And right now, he's doing what's called Advent of Code. Generally, the way it works is, I think, like the first day of December, whoever's behind it, they release the first task for you to implement in any programming language. It doesn't have to be C++ or Java. And you have to try and accomplish something. And then once you do that, you can move to the second day. And the one he's currently working through right now is about getting Santa Claus, who's clearly some sort of alien, (laughs) to Jupiter. And you've got to calculate the amount of fuel he needs to move his sleigh. And then you run into asteroid fields. You've got to plot the optimum path through the asteroids, that sort of thing. Using programming to find these answers and solve these problems. And he's found that to be a great little outlet for him to code. 